Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So these are our last uh, two hours together um, before we say goodbye. Uh, It's been nice uh, for me to spend these three days with all of you, Uh, some of you getting to know more and more each year, Uh, and some of you who are new to practice, uh, welcome. Um, Then tomorrow, uh, all of this will be continued, not in Green Bay, Uh, but uh, in Blue Mounds, which is just outside of Madison. Um, This will be my second time going to Blue Mounds, and it's really beautiful there. And the space where we practice there is just stunning. Um, It's amazing, having been coming now to Wisconsin for eight or nine years, um, to uh, come to Green Bay and uh, to go to Kathy's incredible place in Door County and to go to uh, the city center there in um, Mound Street in Madison and now also to this incredible uh, retreat in Blue Mounds. Uh, It's so lovely. I get to see more of Madison. I mean, more of Wisconsin uh, all the time. Um, The theme that we've been exploring is uh, going back to the early teachings of the Buddha with a sense of historical context. One of the things that interests me about uh, going back to the Pali Canon, these initial teachings of the Buddha, as I said yesterday, is that the more you go back and, and peel back the layers of quote-unquote Buddhism, the further you get from religious Buddhism to the Dharma and then back to this person of the Buddha. And also, the more deeply you study some of these earlier teachings, the more you get a sense of a historical person that was the Buddha. Rather than this, uh, orig- rather than this this kind of idealized figure, who sits perfectly still on an altar, you get a sense of this person who lived in a troubled time, where there were clans vying for power, cities were being created, 
uh, an agrarian culture was being changed completely. Um, uh, you, you start to get a sense of this person who was in dialogue with so many different kinds of people and was very much engaged in his culture. If you peel back the layers of the religion that has been created out of the Buddha's teaching, you find six features that are uniquely attributed to the Buddha that probably don't have a historical precedence before the Buddha's time. Uh, Those features uh, begin with the four truths. Uh, Dukkha, a sense that uh, we were talking about yesterday, but the theologian Don Cupid, who calls Dukkha, bitter, bitter sweet. You get a sense of the ending of the way Dukkha torments us. You get a sense of the third truth, which is craving. And the problem with craving is not just that it causes suffering. That's straightforward. But the real problem with craving is that it obscures the path, which is the fourth truth, that there is a path. And the problem when we're caught in craving is that we can't see the path. When we're caught in craving, we lose track of ourselves. We lose track of our values. We lose track of what's important. So that's one very original feature of the Dharma. Another one is uh, conditioned arising. That everything that arises, arises in conditions. Nothing is born by itself. Everything you experience occurs in a matrix that is dependent on a larger matrix that goes all the way down uh, to more and more matrices. Um, And that uh, this becomes the teaching of shunyata, or emptiness. To see that everything is empty of a fixed self because everything exists only in conditions. It's a very unique feature of the Buddha's repertoire. Um, A third unique feature of the Buddha's teaching is mindfulness. That when you sit, you can pick an object of meditation that's embodied and that's physical and that's always present in a subjective way, which is your breathing. And so it seems in meditation that at first you turn your attention inwards. You pull your attention away from the worries and the planning and your tendency to revive the past. And as you turn your attention inward to the breath, you start to pull away from the habit energies of your psyche, which is the superficial mind. 
It's superficial imagination. It's not deep imagination. And then that leads to an awareness of feelings and then an awareness of mental states and then an awareness of all phenomenon. So mindfulness looks at the beginning like it's an internal process and slowly it reveals an awareness that becomes more and more global and less and less agitated. It's very uniquely Buddhist, I think. Um, A fourth unique feature of the Dharma that comes before the religion of Buddhism is uh, that the Buddha thought of himself as a doctor. And he thought of the practice as a therapy. Not therapy in the way we think now of a psychotherapy. But therapy more in the Greek sense, of, or the Latin sense, rather, of um, healing. That the Dharma is to heal. And it's not just to heal the problem of being an atomized individual, but it's to heal our culture also. And this is an area of the Dharma that needs more work uh, as the Dharma gets planted in this soil. Uh, The last unique feature, I think, of the Dharma that is unique to the, the earlier teachings of the Buddha that I think you don't get later on is self reliance. That for the Buddha, your practice creates a self confidence and a self reliance. The, the, the practitioner of the Dharma becomes independent. Independent in an interdependent way. As you recognize interdependence, you become more independent, able to trust yourself. And I think one of the downfalls about the institutionalization of the Buddha's teaching has been to idealize the teacher and infantilize the student. Having said that, those of you who know me, I think very highly of a teacher-student relationship. I think it's very important. But the problem with the teacher-student relationship is if you're not in it in an intimate way, it looks from the outside like a authority and someone who doesn't know and then it's hard for us to become students because we distrust that model or we idealize that model so much that we miss the teaching so I think that when you can get into a teacher student relationship that's based on intimacy then the student becomes more and more independent and learns how to trust himself or herself. And what I find in most of the ways the Dharma gets taught in larger sanghas 
is it doesn't work that way. It makes the students into serfs. And to, to me, this goes against the spirit of the Buddha's teaching, which is uh, to be a refuge. These are his last words to Ananda. Be a refuge for yourself. Yourself as a refuge. Yourself as something to come back to. Yourself as something to cultivate. And the paradox of that is it's hard to be yourself alone. Because your ego is constantly hijacking your practice. It's always trying to find a way in to make your process of letting go personal. And a good teacher doesn't doesn't know how you should live. But a good teacher can see the good inside you. And, And your relationship with the teacher who's seeing the good in you helps you internalize that in yourself. So you can trust yourself. So we have to be extremely discerning in our spiritual communities. That when we don't like something about the form, we really look at our resistance. That's really important. Because forms are important. And also, they're just forms. So you shouldn't fuss too much. But when there's hierarchy... We have to be very, very careful that uh, we don't participate in a hierarchy that makes people into children. And, and this is what we do in our organizations. And, and it's very, it smells bad. It smells bad. The Dharma creates independence in an interdependent way not independent in an American way and I can only say that because I'm not American (laughs) we were just out for lunch and there was somebody uh, at the table next to us reading a book called uh, Self-Reliance and it was a book about uh, building your own homestead and just uh, really relying on yourself. And, and I don't like this kind of language of self-reliance. Because in a way, uh, to really go build a homestead means to have neighbors and to have a relationship with animals. And self-reliance only makes sense if it's in the context of interdependence. That the self that you're relying on is so big So also, as Americans, you have a mythology that is hard for you to see because you're swimming in it all the time, of this kind of self-reliant, independent happiness project. (laughs) And and it's hard to see, actually. It's hard to see. So we, we have to watch that. We have to watch that. That's not what's meant by independence. It's a deeper kind of self-reliance that includes the whole web. And the the paradox is, 
in the culture where there's so much self-reliance and so much independent, heroic independence, there's also so much giving up of one's power. And you see exactly the opposite. Not a kind of participatory democratic spirit. So, I'm not going to say too much, too much more about that. Tomorrow I'll go on about that. Uh, so, for the past couple of days we've been studying uh, one of the Buddha's teachings called A Single Excellent Night from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. Uh, I've handed it out here. Uh, it's at the end of this handout. I think it's the translation. Uh, yeah, it is. It's the translation um, that I used on Friday night and on, on Saturday. Yeah. Um, you started this little section by saying there were six unique features. Oh, I meant five. You meant five. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Oh, how did I make six then? Number one, number one was conditioned arising. Oh, I'm sorry. Number one is the four noble truths. Yep. Then conditioned arising. Number two was conditioned arising. Number three was mindfulness. Oh, what about emptiness? Was emptiness is a function of conditioned arising. Okay. <laughs> number four was the Buddha as a doctor rather than as a god, or as the, as the mouth of God. And number five is this sense of self-reliance. I think these are attributes of the Buddha's teaching that are uniquely different than the, the kind of teaching that was going on in that time. And that seemed to stand out as unique. So if all goes well this afternoon, I would like to turn the next hour and a half into a study period, um, drawing on our own practice and also being um, uh, critical students um, and thinking through how these teachings apply to our heart and to our, our collective circumstance. Because it's just not us personally that have a strain. Uh, it's also a strain that runs through uh, our culture in a unique way. And although you can say difficulty and stress is universal, it occurs in the culture in a unique way. And we need to think about how the Dharma can flourish in, in our culture. Um, so I hope we can get through two teachings that have been photocopied here. Uh, but if we can only get through one, that's just what happens. Okay? Uh, so the first one is probably the most popular term that people associate with the Buddha Dharma, which is the middle way. I think if you ask most people uh, what is a term from the Dharma that they've heard of, most people would probably say the middle path or the middle way. Um, so this is the text that the middle way teaching comes out of, and um, I thought we could read it, read it together. Um, so it starts like this. This humankind is attached to self-production or 
holds to other production. Those who have not understood this have not seen it as a dart. But one who sees, having drawn out the dart, does not think, I am the agent, nor does he think, another is the agent. So let's think of an example. Uh, You're having trouble in your heart. And it brings up anger. And some of us, the tendency is to blame the anger inward, which is called depression. And so we say, I am the agent. I am the cause of anger. Why am I so angry? I have an anger problem. Or we blame out. They are the cause of my anger. <laughs> they, they cause my anger to arise. That's other production. They are producing my anger. But actually, what we know from this idea of conditioned arising, patichat samutpada, dependent origination, or dependent co-arising, is that anger, as an example, uh, arises with a combination, it's a composite. It arises in a combination of circumstances, triggering memory in both people, but belonging to neither of them. Next time that you encounter someone who's angry, you should not be mad at that person for being angry because that person is only a vehicle of anger. You should be mad at the anger but not at the person because the anger is just arising in the person as a result of conditions. I'm not an angry person. But I have a relationship with someone who triggers me, and if they trigger me in just the right way, I always get angry with them. But I don't get angry really anywhere else. It's just in this situation. So whenever I see them, they always think I'm an angry person. I can feel it in how they relate to me. But actually, I don't get like that, really, in other situations. It just happens to be the way we trigger each other. And I'm sure you all have this. There's a practice that you can do with your father or with your mother. Um... You can contemplate sometime if you have a hard time with your mother or with your father that you should contemplate your father's life before you were born. So your father's life before you. And then you should think about your father's life after you left the house. And then you should see that your father goes so much beyond his life as a father of you. If you really think about his life before he was a dad, and you really think about his life after he was a dad, it relaxes your mind. 
And then you can see that father is just a conditioned phenomenon. It's not something he's created. It's not something you've created. You've both created it and you haven't created it. So don't be attached to the fact that you produce things or that other people produce things and see this as an enmeshment, a composite. And then the Buddha says, here's the third paragraph, what has been attained and what is still to be attained? Both these are littered with dust. Dust, the, the, dust is karma. For a frail person. Those who hold training as the essence or who hold virtue and vow as the essence, pure livelihood as the essence, or celibacy as the essence, or service as the essence, this is an extreme. Those with such theories and such views, there is no fault in sensual desire. This is the other extreme. Both these extremes cause the cemeteries to grow. (laughs) The cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two extremes, some people hold back and some go too far. But for those who penetrated them and were no more found among them, and who did not conceive of this on this account, there is no round for the manifestation of them. That's very interesting, isn't it? So he's saying, on the one hand, there are people who say to have a deep, a deep, meaningful life connected to something deeper than your own ideas about yourself. You have to have intense training. You have to have celibacy. You have to have no sensual desire. That is an extreme. And then there is another extreme. There's those who say to, to have constant sensual desire and to live in Santa Monica. Um, this is great. This is what we all need. Sunshine lots of sex, raw food, any kind of car you want, a walk-in closet. (laughs) This is all you need. And I'm sure none of you have ever thought about this. (laughs) The Buddha is saying that that's another extreme, that there is no fault in that is an extreme. Mm -hmm. Then he says, a person should know what it is to extol and what it is to disparage and knowing both one should neither extol nor disparage but should teach only the Dhamma that's the Pali for Dharma one should know how to define pleasure and knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself 
So that's why I, that's why I mentioned pleasure before we sat today. To, to talk about how when you have the experience of letting go of something, we all know this, right? You, you have an experience where you're holding on and holding on and holding on. That's why retreats are so good. Because when you're on retreat, if you have a bad technique that you don't realize is a bad technique, then you have a bad technique for a few days and it gets really bad. When you sit every day, if your technique is not so good and you're doing something not so great, it takes a long time to feel that. But on retreat, if you're sitting in a way and being with yourself in a way that's unhelpful in silence, it gets really bad really fast. And then the teacher's job is to keep you in that for long enough that you see it. And in your own heart, you go, I can't do this anymore. In the New Year's retreat this past year, there was a woman on the retreat who had so much pain. You know when someone has so much pain and you can't decipher whether it's coming from something in their body or coming from something in their mind. You just It's just such a jumble. And the pain was increasing every day. And then on the third day, she came in for an interview and she had a breakthrough. She said, I realize what I have to do. What's that, I said. She said, I just have to care. I just have to care about the pain. So her attitude was, oh, there's pain and I've got to get over it. I've got to get out of it. And then it was creating this feedback loop of more and more pain. And this is a really interesting insight. I just have to care for the pain. Just like we care for each other. To experience the pleasure of letting go. This is what the Buddha means by pleasure in oneself. One should not utter covert speech, and one should not utter overt, sharp speech. One should not speak hurriedly or not hurriedly. Do you know some people who talk so fast? After a while, you just can't follow them anymore. And you know, there are some people whose words are so measured (laughs) yeah that that you just want to say to them relax it's okay just be yourself just be yourself it's okay one should not insist on local language and one should not override normal usage so for example If there's a way in your community where it's cool to talk in a certain way, you should not insist on only knowing how to speak that way. Because that's how you create a club. And so you should be able to go beyond that. So that's a very interesting teaching, I think. Now, something that drives me really up the wall 
and I'm guilty of this, doing this too sometimes, is sometimes in a community you get to start using a certain vocabulary because of previous teachings, and then it starts to become, um, well, they call it in Zen the stink of Zen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? There's like a certain way of talking, and then it becomes like a club. So the Buddha is saying, you, you, you can't insist on the language of your club. You have to be reworking how you speak so you don't end up in a cult. Because it's not bad that you're in a cult, but then other people can't join. Because it's hard to enter a club where there's a technical vocabulary in the club that's really hard to learn. This is the summary. Oh, so it's supposed to say at the end, and this is the teaching of the middle way. But it doesn't. It says, this is the teaching of non-conflict. So the middle way is a path of non-conflict. And the way I like to think about this is, one of the things we need to cultivate in ourselves is the ability to not be contentious. Uh, to not be contentious in an explosive way. In other words, we don't need more explosive people. We need to become people who enter conflict and our presence de-escalates the conflict. That's what I aspire to. That I want to be a person who, when there's conflict and I show up, I de-escalate the conflict. Sometimes I'm that person. Sometimes I'm not that person. For example, I hate meetings. I'm, I'm a tyrant in meetings. What happens is, and it's a center of gravity, for example, it's a board. We get into the meetings, and I just see how the whole thing can work. so I just say here's how it should go you know and then it's like the conflict increases because I I have a hard time working in committee with people so this is a really good practice for me is when we're working as a group when it's teaching and it's dharma as a group no problem I love working with people and exploring ideas but for some reason when it's like a business meeting I just don't, I don't want to be there. So I, I just don't, I just want it to go as fast as possible. And my presence escalates <laughs> tension. It doesn't de-escalate tension. Yeah. Um, so my practice these days is learning how to be in board meetings. <laughs> yeah. One of our yoga students here, I think she's here, had a shirt in yoga the other day that said, I'm not bossy, I just have the best ideas. <laughs> so that's what the issue is. <laughs> With me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My husband agrees wholeheartedly. She saved it at the last Ha, 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 ha.
Um, so is there anything that anybody wants to share about what they hear in this? Yeah. In some ways, being part of a club and allowing language to take on that aspect, is it similar to like slang, which shortens and narrows the parameter of the expressiveness of language? Uh, it can be. You see, there is a place to have technical language. Because I think, for example, when you want to talk about uh, certain kinds of uh, states of mind and meditation practice, or you want to talk about certain subtle things around the Dharma, uh, or if you're a dentist and you want to talk about you know details in the mouth, if you're uh, a lawyer and you want to talk about subtle points of law, uh, you need to have a technical language. There's nothing wrong with the technical language. The Buddha's not saying there's a problem. The problem is, is when you insist on it. My question was, but it's not even in a technical aspect. Yeah. If you, if you have a set way of saying the same thing over and over again, yeah. it shortens the expression in the broader sense. Yeah, and I'm saying that's technical. That's a good thing. There is a place for that. But we also have to be able to not only rely on that. Because there is a place for that. There is a place for that. I mean, it's how human language develops, right? It's like, you know, we're in communities and we, we change a word, we, we work a word a certain way, it means something specific to our time, right? Yeah, you bet, dude. Yeah. Or, um, friend me. A hundred years ago, if you said to one, someone, oh, just friend me. <laughs> Oh, the Buddha uses that uh, metaphor a lot. Um, what's a dart? Uh, it's something that pins you down. It's some. It's a weapon. Uh, it's something that injures you. Um, it gets, you know, it, it gets shot into the body. Um, so, if you're attached. To the notion of uh, I am the cause of this that's like getting shot with a dart uh, this is also of reference to another famous teaching of the Buddha called the two darts D does anybody is anyone familiar with that uh, the Buddha says uh, when a person is in pain it's like they have been shot with two darts the first dart is a physical one, and the second dart is a mental one. I was actually going to use that teaching this afternoon. So, uh, then he says, but uh, a discipline, a, a, a disciple of the Dharma uh, eventually only has one dart, the first dart, and not the second that you get, you have experience of pain and you have the first dart. But a disciple of the Buddha does not add a mental dart on top of that. So he often uses this idea of, you know, the dart, uh, which we would say now is a bullet, you know, if we're in the U.S. <laughs> 
Monique, does that yeah. does that make sense? Could you talk just a bit more about when you see anger in someone it's not really their anger? They're angry about the conditions. Yeah. And when I talk with that person, I just realize that they're just angry about what's going on. Yeah, that it's it, it can be an interesting practice to separate the emotion that's coming out of somebody with the person. Especially if they always have that emotion around you. They, you know, like you said, you're, you have that situation where you do yeah. have always but intense. Yeah, yeah. Or if there's someone where you start to see that, wow, I have this one view that they're an angry person. But nobody is always an angry person. Nobody is always an angry person. No one. No one's always one thing. Who's always one thing? Nobody's always one thing. That's why I my heart always breaks when I read about uh, the number of people in prison. Because you think, especially young people did one stupid thing. And maybe what they did was a really, really bad thing. Horrendous. But then it was this one thing in his whole life. And now they're just paying the consequences for this one thing. And irrespective of your politics around it, we have to be able to see the person and the life that's behind this one thing. Mm-hmm. You know? It's not just one one thing. And the conditions. Exactly, and the conditions. Yeah. And, and that is what the Buddha is saying is the middle path, which is a, a way of non-conflict. To see the conditioned arising of things. Um, for example with anger and we've been studying Shantideva back in Toronto so one of the things Shantideva says is very interesting about this he says it is really easy to find good people but it is really rare to find a really bad person So when you have someone in your life who's a really bad person, that person is your enemy. Does everybody have someone like this? Somebody who's, does every, I mean, everybody usually has one enemy who just makes your life difficult. And when you have somebody who makes your life really difficult, you should say, I am so lucky that I have managed to have in my life one really, really difficult person so that I can practice patience instead of anger. So whenever I encounter this person and they drive me crazy then I should remember that I am so fortunate that they're in my life 
so that I can learn how to practice patience in this time of reactivity so that I can deepen my own heart. So I shouldn't fight with them because it's a real service that they're doing. But actually, if you take this logic further, then maybe the opposite is also true, that my presence in their life is making them practice so that they have an opportunity for more patience. So once in a while, I should fight with them. (laughs) Because if I engage them in a conflict, then they are really going to have to cultivate patience. So it's so good that they found me. And I shouldn't feel so bad when I'm triggered and I fight them because my fighting them is actually helping them to gain a deeper spiritual life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's the Buddha's teaching on the middle way. Um, I that's, think. I, I think that's what. The entire teaching on the middle way. Well, it's not the whole thing, uh, but but it is actually. Yeah. The, of course, the Buddha taught for what, like sixty years or something, yeah. fifty years. Um, I can't remember how, how long that Jesus taught for. Thirty years. Two or three years. So, yeah. So the Buddha taught for like really, really long time. So there's so many teachings, you know. Um, so of course, it's not the only teaching on the middle way, uh, but this is one of a few that I think is really uh, pertinent and surprising. Actually, it's, it's it's surprising some of the things he says in there. Um, okay. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take a break because yesterday we went the whole afternoon we didn't have a break and I thought maybe that was a little a little long. So how about we take a short break and then if we have a break we can have time to do one more teaching which is much, much longer. Uh, is that okay if we do that? So maybe if we took a break for about 10 minutes? Yeah? Okay. Great. Thank you.